Chapter 11 of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 11 Immediately after the lecture in the Prince's Hall, Oscar Wilde commenced to visit various provincial towns in different parts of the kingdom to give his address on The House Beautiful, under a contract with a firm of lecture agents. The labour was not distasteful to him, and the fees earned in this way were at that time his sole resource. He was so poor in the autumn of 1883 that he was frequently obliged to have recourse to the pawnbrokers, and just before his first lecture in London, a friend accompanied him to Marlborough Street Police Court to swear to the loss of a pawn ticket before the magistrate. The same friend remembers a day, at about the same time, when he was entirely devoid of funds, and for once at least could have written himself down imprancis as he retired to bed. Under no other circumstances would he have brought himself to associate his name with the enterprise of those provincial lectures. So clear was it made to him that its success was expected not from the value and the interest of the address, but from the notoriety attaching to his name as the eccentric aesthete. The great majority of the people who came to his lectures paid the entrance fee with no other purpose than to stare at the man who was reported to have a strange passion for sunflowers and lilies. Everybody had heard of the aesthetic movement. Very few even knew the meaning of the adjective. It was to imbeciles of this calibre that this scholar was forced by his necessity to discourse. His lectures were not successful in any degree, nor can the speculation have been a very profitable one to the agents who had engaged upon it. The people were vastly disappointed to find that his appearance, dress and manners were no different from those of any gentleman. The advertisements of these lectures which appeared in some provincial town were calculated to arouse the highest expectations of the morbidly curious. A show was promised, the subject matter of the lecture was not referred to. On certain newspaper files in different parts of the country, one may still read display advertisements running down whole columns after some such fashion of vulgarity as this. He is coming! He is coming! He is coming! Who is coming? Who is coming? Who is coming? Oscar Wilde! Oscar Wilde! Oscar Wilde! The Great Eastheat! The Great Eastheat! The Great Eastheat! It was in this way that it was brought to the public notice that a gentleman of rare scholarship and great erudition designed to address a meeting on a subject on which, at least, from a careful study of its masters and extensive reading and observation, he was adequately qualified to speak. One day, in Charles Street, one of his friends picked up a provincial newspaper which was lying on his table. Oscar Wilde, whose manners were always gentle and urbane, flushed red and violently snatched it from his hands. "'Do not look at that!' he cried, crushing the paper up and flinging the ball into the fire. His friend had, however, 
noticed an advertisement similar in tone to the one of which a part is given above. Nobody felt more keenly the degradation of these exhibitions than the potential author of The Soul of Man Under Socialism himself. Although his want of money was pressing at this time, he indignantly refused to appear in aesthetic costume, in spite of the fact that for such an additional attraction a much higher fee would have been paid to him. In view of his refusal, the agents, who were well aware that it was the person of Oscar Wilde and not at all what he might have to say about beautiful houses that would attract the sightseers of the provinces, were obliged to conceal the fact that no spectacle was to be afforded. The references to the great aesthete in the advertisements contained the suggestion that something laughable was to be on exhibition, and when the audience discovered that instead of watching the antics and listening to the patter of a buffoon, they were expected to lend ear to a disquisition delivered by a scholar, which invited their minds to ascend to a plane of inaccessible height, they were not slow to express their disappointment and disapproval. On several occasions the room emptied itself during the progress of the lecture. It will be of interest to put on record here, in spite of the vulgarity of their style, two pen-pictures of him drawn at the time in different places by two provincial journalists, for they will show first what the audience had expected to see, and secondly how they were impressed by his appearance and delivery. They are representative of opinions expressed throughout the country. This is the first. Quote, we were informed by the advertisement pamphlet that this gentleman has, since the publication of his book of poems in 1890, devoted his time to public addresses. So, as poets do not often come before the public personally, we were naturally anxious to see what a poet-lecturer was like. With imaginary visions of celebrated poets in mind, we were anxiously awaiting the appearance of Mr. Wilde upon the platform, when the curtain was drawn asunder and in walked not a Tennyson, but a long fellow. For the first quart d'heure, we could not erase the impression from our minds that the subject of the lecture was not the house beautiful, but the man beautified. This chevaux de frise, he gets very warm on the subject of friezes, proved at a glance how highly the lecturer estimated the power of capillary attraction, for his head seemed surrounded with a perfect halo of artificially arrayed curls, which, if removable, would doubtless fetch a figurative sum at an auction sale as a most admirable substitute for a lady's bonnet. Joking apart, no gentleman would contradict a lady who said that Mr. Wilde could rejoice in the possession of a hairy head, which at once stamps him as a master of artistic decoration. His collar had evidently been made to an original design, which has no doubt been deposited at South Kensington and the pattern patented, or it must have been in the market long ago. His necktie was neither tied nor untied, but like the clerical collar, 
puzzled one to know where it began and how it ended. His cuffs were equally aesthetic and took one by the collar. Mr. Wilde's theory as to the harmonious arrangement of colours in art decoration is that our backgrounds should consist of tertiary or neutral tints, relieved by small objects or ornaments of rich primary colour or bright appearance. The man beautified was accordingly arrayed in the neutral tints of black and white, with the rich relief in the shape of a red silk handkerchief peeping out from the left side of his vest, and a massive watch-chain pendant which appeared like the name-label on a bunch of keys, inasmuch as no one else had one just like it. In, not on, those marvellous members of the human body, the hands, were held a pair of white silk gloves, which, if the owner did not know to be useful at all events, felt to be beautiful. Tall and graceful, and presenting a youthful appearance, he delivers his lecture with clear, distinct articulation, never hesitating for a word, nor striving after flights of eloquence, but handling his subject with an amount of assurance and self-possession that gives you the impression that he must be quite as high an authority as Morris or Ruskin, whom he quotes to agree or disagree with. The closing part of his lecture on art education drew forth repeated applause, and, in fact, the whole of it was sufficiently interesting to gain for him unbroken attention during the hour and a half which his lecture occupied. Unquote. This is how the second provincial journalist wrote. Quote, Oscar Wilde, the aesthetic, the ineffable, the exponent of the principle of eternal loveliness, has visited us and is human. He is not an angel after all, nor is he a deity springing to us out of the dark past. His food must have been other than the nectared sweets the poets love to write about. In fact, he can be seen, and heard, and handled, for he is a man. This revelation will come as an unwelcome surprise to many. One so delightfully out of sympathy with the age, with such ineffable yearnings towards the romantic past, with such inexpressible aspirations towards the beauteous future when the essential ugliness of today shall only be remembered as a hideous dream, such a man cannot be, ought not to be, one of us. So I am sure many think. I believe it was Mrs. Browning who describes how sad we feel when we find our cherished idols simply to be clay. But I can confess to no such revelation of feeling when Mr. Oscar Wilde stepped onto the platform and I discovered he had no wings. Mr. Oscar Wilde is tall, well-proportioned, with a poet's hair and, shall I say it, a mildly epicurean countenance. In his appearance there was nothing Byronic or Bulvarian or Carlylean or Ruskinesque, a little that savoured of Count d'Orsay, Beau Brummel, and more that suggested the traditional diner out. 
His dress had few peculiarities, being ordinary evening dress, a very wilderness of shirt front relieved by a half-concealed scarlet handkerchief deftly placed inside his vest. His pose and manner might have been artistic, but were not particularly effective. His voice is a moderately pleasing one, with an occasional lisp to give it an aristocratic tone. His action, what little there was of it, was striking. He spoke entirely extempore, not even availing himself of the use of notes. For very much more than an hour he addressed his audience. There was no hesitation, and there was no fire. Only once there was an approach to pathos, and as far as I could detect only one quotation from the poets, excepting an extract he gave in the form of a letter, I think of John Keats. He came to speak to us on an important subject, and here I must say that if his lecture had been called the Home Beautiful instead of the House Beautiful, I should have been better pleased. Englishmen, especially such as would go and hear such a discourse as Oscar Wilde's, do not care much for their houses. They care everything for their homes. An Englishman never says he is going to his house, but always that he is going home. A house to an Englishman is an empty building, the same building filled with furniture and all sorts of lovely things, plus wife and children, becomes a home. Unquote. On people of refinement, the impression produced was, of course, a different one. Many people in many parts of the country, remembering him as he appeared to them twenty-two years ago, speak regretfully of his fate. Over women, his personality seems to have exercised a great influence. I can remember him, writes a lady of refinement and culture from a Midland town, as though I had seen him yesterday. My mother was delighted with his appearance. She often afterwards spoke of his hair and his hands and his tie. Oh, his tie, how it impressed us all! For my part, though I was only a girl then, I felt he was saying things which nobody present could understand, and it seemed to me at times as though he knew it also. I felt it was a pity he should have had to come here at all, for I suppose it was a necessity that drove him on to the lecture platform. Many of the things he said have remained familiar in my mind ever since. I never see a big curtain pole without thinking of what he said about the sins of the upholsterer, and I know that I never drink a cup of tea at a railway refreshment room without remembering how he described the cup out of which he drank his coffee in the hotel in San Francisco, where he contrasted the crockery of the Chinese in the Chinese quarter of that city with the domestic vessels used by the Europeans. It was a real distress to me to sit in that lecture room looking at this wonderful youth and listening to his profound and beautiful words, while the rest of the audience were either gazing with dismay and surprise, or showing how bored they were. The room was not half full to begin with, and during the whole course of the lecture people kept getting up and going out. But he seemed quite indifferent to the mood of his audience. 
his manner if i may use the term in such a connection was quite business-like it was as if he was saying to himself i am here to say certain things and i shall go on speaking until i have said them he began speaking the moment he came on the stage and when he had said his last word he walked off as if anxious to catch a train and get away from us all those amongst his provincial audiences who listened to him and who attempted to be critical were in the habit of saying that his weakness as a lecturer was in a tendency to exaggeration some joseph prudhomme of the provinces sagely remarked he pronounces as dicta with the authority of an oracle principles which are essentially debatable the most favourite criticism however of oscar wilde's lecture on the house beautiful a criticism which can be found in similar phraseology in contemporary prints all over the country and not in the provinces alone was to the effect that mr oscar wilde seems to ignore the deeply rooted prejudice that aestheticism if not symbolic of weakness and effeminacy is at least the antithesis of that moral and intellectual robustness which we in this age are accustomed to respect from this bondage from these chains which to such an artist must have been galling indeed oscar wilde was to be rescued by the gentle and beautiful constance lloyd to her for some time past he had been paying attentions it was during the course of his lecture tour that he was able to visit dublin and ask her to become his wife constance lloyd admired him and loved him she put her hand into his she was wealthily connected she was assured of a good income on her marriage by her grandfather who had instituted her to be his heiress the marriage took place on the twenty ninth of may eighteen eighty four we find the following announcement of it in the times for thirty first may Quote, on twenty ninth may at st james's church paddington by the reverend walter abbott vicar oscar younger son of the late sir william wilde m d of dublin to constance mary only daughter of the late horace lloyd esq q c edmund yates gave a friendly notice of the occurrence in the world for fourth june eighteen eighty four Quote, mr oscar wilde's wedding went off with more simple effect than the large crowd who thronged the church had possibly come out to see owing to the illness of mr john horatio lloyd the bride's grandfather the ceremony was meant to be of rather a private character and only the near relatives were asked to meet at lancaster gate after the service there is only this much to be recorded about it that the bride accompanied by her six pretty bridesmaids looked charming that oscar bore himself with calm dignity and that all most intimately concerned in the affair seemed thoroughly pleased a happy little group of intimes saw them off at charing cross Unquote. yet the baroque and the bazaar were not wanting in this wedding which sealed a union which was to end in such unhappiness it appeared that oscar wilde felt it incumbent on him as a professor of aesthetics to
to give such directions as to the dresses of his bride and bridesmaids as might impress the onlookers with the fact that it was no ordinary wedding that they were attending a brief description of these dresses will establish this suggestion Quote, the bride's rich creamy satin dress was of a delicate cowslip tint the bodice cut square and somewhat low in front was finished with a high medici collar the ample sleeves were puffed the skirt made plain was gathered by a silver girdle of beautiful workmanship the gift of mr oscar wilde the veil of saffron coloured indian silk gauze was embroidered with pearls and worn in mary stuart fashion a thick wreath of myrtle leaves through which gleamed a few white blossoms crowned her fair frizzed hair the dress was ornamented with clusters of myrtle leaves the large bouquet had as much green in it as white the six bridesmaids were cousins of the bride two dainty little figures that seemed to have stepped out of a picture by sir joshua reynolds led the way they were dressed in quaintly made gowns of sora silk the colour of a ripe gooseberry large pale yellow sashes round their waist the skirts falling in straight folds to the ankles displaying small bronze high-heeled shoes large red silk gainsborough hats decked with red and yellow feathers shaded the damsel's golden hair amber necklaces long yellow gloves a cluster of yellow roses at their throats a bouquet of white lilies in their hands completed the attire of the tiny bridesmaids the four elder bridesmaids wore skirts of the same red sora silk with overdresses of pale blue mousseline de laine the bodices made long and pointed high-crowned hats trimmed with cream-coloured feathers and red knots of ribbon lilies in their hands amber necklaces and yellow roses at their throats made up a sufficiently picturesque ensemble one of the ladies present wore what was described as a very aesthetic costume it was composed of an underdress of rich red silk with a sleeveless smock of red plush a hat of white lace trimmed with clusters of red roses under the brim and round the crown Unquote this gaudy and displeasing picture must be recalled it proves as nothing else could prove the entire confidence of constance lloyd in the artistic pretensions of her husband no woman who was not blindly convinced of the superiority of her bridegroom's taste would have consented to such a masquerade it may have occurred to some of the onlookers that a union so initiated could not contain the elements of happiness where the woman is entirely hypnotized and subjugated her marriage is not often a happy one for her on the day of his wedding oscar wilde took his young wife over to paris and the first weeks of the honeymoon were spent in that city they occupied a suite of rooms at the hotel wagram in the rue de rivoli they both seemed to be radiantly happy oscar was a gallant and devoted husband and constance seemed to be swathed in rapturous delight if ever her husband left her alone to go out with any friend 
a few minutes after his departure a messenger would arrive at the hotel bearing for the bride a bouquet of exquisite flowers together with a note couched in language of such impassioned adoration that it charmed her solitude and made her happy even though her loved one was away mrs wilde's dowry enabled the young couple to take the lease of a good house in tite street chelsea which was the last home of his own that oscar was to possess it was decorated under the direction of whistler and was substantially furnished at the very top of the house a workroom had been installed for oscar wilde the furniture of which was painted red but he never used this room the little writing that he ever did at home was done in a small study which was to the right of the entrance passage mrs wilde's income at that time was not large she did not come into her grandfather's fortune until much later and it became immediately necessary for oscar to find remunerative employment he turned to journalism for livelihood and he accepted occasional engagements on the lecture platform he was a constant contributor of anonymous work to the world and the pall mall gazette much of his writings at this time have been traced and were recently being hawked round the london publishing houses by speculators in his notoriety it was a disservice to his reputation it would appear which would concern these literary resurrection men but little the work was poor it was the hack work currente calamo of a man who had no heart in his labours and poorer stuff said one london publisher to whom this volume was offered i never read in my life yet at the same time he was writing those exquisite fairy stories which were afterwards republished in a volume by david nutt the happy prince and other tales eighteen eighty eight a volume which many of his admirers look upon as his best and most characteristic prose work there are no fairy stories in the english language to compare with them the writing is quite masterly the stories proceed from a rare and opulent imagination and while the tales that are told interest the child no less than the man of the world there underlies the whole a subtle philosophy an indictment of society a plea for the disinherited which make of this book and of the house of pomegranates eighteen ninety one two veritable requisitoires against the social system as crushing as the soul of man and yet as one reads these tales the lesson that the author wishes to teach never forces itself upon him unlike lewis carroll and hans anderson oscar wilde tells a story which a child can read with pleasure and interest and without that uncomfortable feeling that moral medicine is being administered to him in literary preserves if oscar wilde had had hopes that the lecture platform would afford a source of income to him he was doomed to disappointment in january eighteen eighty five he delivered at the gaiety dublin under the management of mr michael gunn two afternoon lectures the first given on the afternoon of monday fifth january was on dress beauty taste 
ugliness in dress and the second on tuesday treated of the value of art in modern life on both these lectures a resume appears at the end of this volume the enterprise was a disastrous failure dublin was indifferent to the son of speranza indifferent to the son of sir william wilde indifferent to the brilliant trinity college man who had so distinguished himself and his country at oxford and to the poet and lecturer who had set two worlds talking we find in the freeman's journal for sixth january the following prefatory remarks to its notice of the lecture on dress Quote, although the fact of the lecture taking place was fully announced for days in advance the attendance was hardly satisfactory at most about five hundred persons were present chiefly in the dress circle and stalls but the audience though not large was highly intelligent critical and appreciative of the matter and style of the lecturer evidently people have ceased to regard mr wilde as the eccentric apostle of a momentarily fashionable craze to be seen heard and laughed at Unquote. a highly appreciative account of the lecture followed but that afternoon the attendance was very much smaller possibly the high prices charged for admission frightened the public Mr. Gunn was asking 21 shillings, 30 shillings and 42 shillings for private boxes and proportionate prices for the rest of the house. At that time, matinee performances of a pantomime were being given at the Gaiety and it is related that a gentleman accompanied by two boys came by mistake into the theatre, sat down and listened patiently for some time to Oscar's discourse and finally got up exclaiming, What's all this? When's the pantomime going to begin? In the following month, there appeared in the Dublin University Review, of all publications, the one in which the greatest deference ought to have been paid to the Barclay medalist, son of Sir William Wilde, and a frequent contributor to its pages, two sarcastic and cutting notices of his lecture. These are they. Quote, we confess that before a visit to the Gaiety Theatre dispelled the illusion we had thought that the reappearance of Mr. Oscar Wilde before a Dublin audience would have excited very general interest among his fellow citizens. Indeed, in spite of the fact that Mr. Wilde, like the elephant Jumbo with whose notoriety his popularity was contemporaneous, has ceased to attract the sympathy and the shillings of the public, we feel bound to express our belief of the talents of that gentleman, and our regret that they have not latterly been more usefully employed. The indifference with which the lecturer was received cannot fairly be ascribed to any falling off in the quality of the lectures, which formed not only a complete exposition of Mr. Wilde's peculiar philosophy of art, but were in themselves instructive and suggestive. However, a few more lectures as unfortunate from a commercial point of view as those recently delivered in this city will materially remedy this defect and will help to restore Mr. Wilde to public favour. Meanwhile, he will not regret the decrease on his receipts, for as he stated in his second lecture, true art is economical.
Unquote. In the same number of the official organ of TCD appears a letter on Sir Noel Payton's picture, Lux in Tenebris. It is pretty enough, says the writer, quote, but it no more realises the idea of a spiritual light shining in the moral darkness of the world than would, let us say, a picture of Mr. Oscar Wilde preaching about dress improvers at the Gaiety. Unquote. This was Dublin's salute to the most talented man to whom she had ever given birth. For the rest, although in Ireland one finds little of that horror against the mention of Oscar Wilde's name, which still lingers in England, in certain quarters, where one would least expect to find it, it persists. In the summer of last year, a gentleman being desirous of purchasing a photograph of Oscar Wilde as a child, and of getting information as to the early life of Speranza, sent an advertisement embodying his requirements to the Freeman's Journal, where, if anywhere in Ireland, Lady Wilde's memory ought to have been revered. The advertisement was eventually inserted, but not for several days, during which the manager was communicating with the editor, the acting editor not having dared to assume so grave a responsibility, as to whether an advertisement referring to Lady Wilde and her son could be allowed to appear in the journal. Mr Whistler's attack on Oscar Wilde, the details of which can be found set out in The Gentle Art of Making Enemies, did much to reduce still lower any chances of success as a lecturer which remained to Oscar Wilde. Whistler made it public that Oscar Wilde's lecture on the English Renaissance was mainly made up from facts and opinions which he, Whistler, had supplied to the lecturer. It would have been just as easy for that admirable actor, Herman Vezin, to have rushed into print and to have declared that Oscar's manner on the stage was the result of some training in elocution and gesture which he had given him before he commenced his lecture tour. But then Herman Vezin is not only a great artist, he is a true and loyal friend. This source of income having failed, there were periods of real poverty in the elegant house in Tite Street. A lady who lived near the Wilds has recorded that at that time she was frequently called upon by Mrs. Wilde to lend her money, even small sums such as the purchase of a pair of boots might demand. At the same time, the expenses of the menage were increasing. In June 1885, and again in November 1886, a son was born to them. Stray writings for the papers and an occasional signed contribution to the reviews could not produce the income which was necessary to supplement the wife's allowance, and in the end Oscar Wilde turned to journalism for a living for himself and his family. End of chapter 11